0: All right, so <clears throat> we're starting a new section here in 1 Samuel, and uh, with some new main characters, um, although we're not done with our, uh, the previous family that we've been talking about the last few weeks, but, um, but wow, we've got this, um, this kind of new feel here in chapter 2, second half, like we talked about last week. There's this sudden record scratch in the story, and this precious little family that we've been learning from is going to cease to be the main uh, focus of our attention. And instead, we're going to start someplace else. I'm going to jump back to chapter 1, verse 3 to introduce them. That's where they are introduced. First Samuel chapter 1, verse 3. Now this man, that's Elkanah, the, the, <clears throat> again, the family we've been talking about, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, or Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now anytime you're doing Hebrew scripture, it's always good to stop and evaluate names. And name meanings for several reasons. Um, Sometimes there seems to be this spiritual connection between a name and what God accomplishes in someone's life. Um, And that may, in fact, um, sometimes be the order in which things happen. Also, it's important to know that in the Hebrew mindset, it makes total sense to them to change someone's name based on what God is doing in their life or or what's going on in their life. And so um, sometimes this feels weird to us because we don't do a lot of that, but that is a common thing So when we see a name like Eli, which means elevated or high or lifted up, um, that makes sense given that he is the priest and maybe even the high priest in Israel at this point. Um, And also as good uh, Hebrew scholars that we are, as we've been looking at scripture, we should know if he's starting the story high and lifted up, what's going to happen with this God of reversal of fortunes may not be such a pretty thing. And in fact, it's not going to be. His two sons introduced to us, Hophni and Phinehas. Um, Phineas is a, the, and one of the sons of Aaron, was also named a similar name to this. And um, things did not work out so well for the sons of Aaron. Um, we don't have time to unpack that today. But for whatever reason, Eli has named one son Phineas and one Hophni. Now, Hophni may be from the Hebrew word or from a Hebrew word that means fists or handful. Again, is this referencing that this guy's nature is to grab a handful of things? Um, it just happened to be his name, his his, his whoever Eli's wife thought, Oh, I think singhof you sounds cool. I don't I don't know. I don't know if we're trying to you can do too much of this if you're not careful, but his fists are handful. One of the translation I mean, one of the commentators were said that he was this name means pugnacious. For those who didn't do so well on your SATs, that means someone's willing ready to fight pugnacious they've got their fists up and they're ready to go all the time that's what that means so that may be one however i was intrigued by what one hebrew common uh, commentator said about this passage and so i'm gonna unpack this just for a second hopney and phineas are also both according to this ex, this one expert egyptian names now that would be intriguing if this is accurate um, if it is Hebrew, the, he, the, the Egyptian name for Hafni is tadpole. Um, don't, don't know what that would possibly just kind of a squirmy guy. I don't know. Um, uh, afterwards, um, um, uh, oh, who came? Anyway, someone came up and said, um, I can't, never can remember things that happened between services. It's like it didn't happen. Um, but someone came up and said, maybe he's just always stuck at this level of development, right? He's just like, <laughs> This is a man-child. He never grows past being tadpoles. Like, ouch. But... And in Phineas, which again, um, at least according to this person, was, uh, is an Egyptian name, would mean dark-skinned. Again, what that's a reference to, it's hard to know. But, but this would be really strange. And so is this a parable being woven into this passage that's, that's causing us to ask the question, um, has, is there Egypt in the tabernacle? Now, this is always this, this picture, and um, we see it in several different places in Hebrew scripture and in Hebrew um, legend and, and tradition and stuff. This idea of, of how did something that was ungodly get involved in the godly? Like when we do Passover, which Lord willing, we'll be doing this next spring. I hope if you've never experienced a Passover, you'll come for that. But um, one of the wild things is you have all the things that God has ordained beyond the Passover plate you've got the lamb, and you've got the bitter herbs. Um, and you've got the the apple stuff that's or the whatever that's made to make look look like mortar and and whatever. And then there's an egg. Just totally randomly, there's an egg on the Passover plate, which is not commanded scripturally. Nowhere is an egg referenced here. No one knows for sure where it came from. Maybe just a replacement for the lamb at one point. But but many people think that because of the time that the people of Israel were in Babylon and that they worship a fertility cult during the same time of year, during the spring, And that eggs are one of the ways they worship that fertility cult is that what may have happened is that the worship, the worship of the false gods of Babylon ended up not just in the practice, but on the Passover plate itself, that that's how dangerous it can be. It's how near to us we can bring the world and Satan. What if that's what's going on here? What if the author here is trying to give us the hint? This is how bad it's gotten. There's a connection to the fact that they are from Egypt when the man of God shows up. In a a few minutes, we'll talk about this. A totally random man of God shows up in verse 27. There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord God, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? So again, our mind is taken back to Egypt. But most potently by far is the fact that the sons of Eli certainly are in the worldview of Egypt and of Pharaoh. We're going to see the phrase used by them, they did not know the Lord. Now, that's a wild statement to make, um, but I think it's a quote from Pharaoh. Exodus 5.2, Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt, said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. <clears throat> I think this is significant. I think it is at minimum, it is the mindset of pharaoh now here's what's wild to say you work in the tabernacle your whole life your father is the priest or the high priest you're serving in the tabernacle and you don't know the lord clearly that's not a statement of ignorance as in never heard of him got nothing who are you talking about who is this lord character you're talking about oh that's what we've been saying 19 times a day as we've done all these different oh oh, that's who you no no clearly they knew who the lord was they just held him in contempt They were just disgusted or frustrated. They certainly did not fear him. They certainly did not acknowledge him as their Lord. And that's what we're going to run into, just like Pharaoh. Yeah, I've I've heard of your God. I'm just not impressed. So Pharaoh gets to be impressed. Well, that's what what Hophni and Phinehas are going to face as well. So I do think it's important to recognize this would represent toxin, not weakness. I think sometimes people come to church, especially evangelical churches, and we think, that what we need to be repenting of is our weakness. Um, we're all weak and, and we do need the Lord in our weakness. If we're not careful, we also think the opposite, which is we only need the Lord in our sin. The truth is we are weak and we need the Lord in our weakness. And we all bring weakness here to church with us, all of us. We are all frail and we all need his comfort and we all need his support and we all need his uh, alignment with his strength. So I'm going to pray first for that, that God would align us, plug us into the, his power over our weakness. Father, um, we come to you acknowledging our weakness. We know we are weak. <coughs> we know we are frail creatures of dust. And Lord, it, it's our prayer that you would work within our weakness. <clears throat> In fact, that instead of our weakness being the first step toward our sin, our weakness would be the first step towards showing your strength. Lord, I pray we would embrace the fact that we are weak and in need of a savior, a healer, a comforter, a counselor. Lord, I pray that you would send through the power of your son and according to your desire to give us good gifts, send us the spirit to support us in our weakness, in our ignorance, in our frailty. Lord, it's good for us to remember that. that things sometimes don't work because it's a fallen world and we are weak. We thank you that you are strong in the midst of that in your son's name. Amen. Now, also we bring sin with us. This is what's being represented here. We bring wrong thinking, bad thinking, sinful thinking, selfish thinking. It's fascinating. Saturday's a great day for sin. Um, the day before we come to church, it's where we're frustrated. It's things don't work out the way we want. We're like, here's what my Saturday's going to look like. And then it doesn't, and we're filled with pride, and disgust, and sin, and, and demands, and entitlement, and things don't go the way we want them to go. We're more likely to get into conflict with our spouse or with our children because we have to be around them all day. And so it's, a, it's like this, every time we get humans and we get together, it's, it's an ugly thing, and we know that, we get that in our weakness And in our sin, you bring us together and we are often short-tempered and and impatient and and unkind. And and those type of things seem to come out. And the more we're around each other, the more we see some of those things. And so um, it's just a good reminder as well that as we come here together, we are bringing with us not only our weakness, but our sin. And our sin, which we're going to talk about today in detail as we discuss some of these things, is offensive to an almighty God. It damages us and it damages each other and it damages him. And so I also want to take a second and pray that God would, re- that as we repent, God would remove the effects that we could live in the fullness of who he is, even in the midst of our frailty and living outside of the power of that sin in this moment. Father, we, we come before you humbly. You've warned us that sin entangles. You've warned us that sin can deafen us and blind us. Um, You've warned us that sin can harden us against you. And today's message is one, uh, Lord, that we probably all need. The reminder of who you are and what that means about how we relate to you. And I pray that today that you would, in fact, take our sin. We confess that we are sinners and that we sin. We are no longer defined by that, but that's always a correct descriptor. We are sinners and And Lord, um, uh, you have set us free of living according to the slavery of sin. And Lord, I pray you would teach us not to be enslaved to ourselves, not to be enslaved to sin, but instead to be enslaved to you, our Lord. Lord, I pray that even now the sins over this next few minutes that you bring to our mind, Lord, that you would help us repent of those, confess those, accept the good gifts, that you would continue as we confess, that you would continue to forgive, that you would continue to make pure that you would, in fact, take those sins and separate them from us and from you as far as the east is from the west. And that you would take you, God, who know all things, would intentionally bury them in a sea of forgetfulness. For we pray this because you are the only one who can accomplish these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, jumping in. Here we go. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. There it is. Now, this is what's wild. This is the same word that Hannah used back in the beginning of this account. You Remember? When she was horrified that Eli might think she's a worthless woman. She's horrified by this. What, what a, just a terrible hypocrisy that here he calls out sin in her when it isn't there. Remember back in chapter 1. And he is failing to deal with the sin in his own family in the tabernacle that is so apparent to everybody in the rest of the section. And that just like us, we love to point out the splinter in your eye, ignore the plank in our own. She's horrified that Eli might consider her a strange woman worthless, but his own sons are, however, in fact, worthless. The exact same word. This is hard. How painful to hear this. Verse 13 the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come. While the meat was boiling with a three-pronged knife in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. This is straight up stealing from the people. The people of Israel would show up and they would just (coughs) steal food from them. But it's much bigger than that. Um, the, the level, the breach of hospitality here is horrific. Now I can talk about hospitality here for those of you, especially who were raised in the South, because we still have a concept of hospitality in the South. I have family who lived up North and they would talk about how as they drove from North to South, they could tell, even if they hadn't looked at their map or GPS, they could tell how far South they'd gotten by how people interacted with them. So that up, up, you know, up north, it's like everybody is strangers. No one talks. There's no interaction. Like by the time they get to Texas, the guy pumping gas across from you is like, "So how's your day going? You need anything? You all good? Everything good?" Like it's it's a like there's this level of hospitality. Hey, welcome to our people. Welcome to our state. Welcome to our home. Welcome to our like we have a natural thing for this, and we get the breach of hospitality is offensive to us. Um, if if. If, you, if you're stuck on the side of the road, everybody who drives past and doesn't offer to help is offensive to you, as it should be, right? This is Texas, dadgummit, stop and help. So this is a, but that whole, that, that mindset, we get that. Now imagine if you would, that in, in, in your southern hospitality, you decide to have some friends over, and they come over to your house, and they're in your house, they're in your house, and you're preparing food f- to have a feast with them. And some random guy comes walking into your house with a fork and walks back to the grill, sticks his his grill, his fork into the grill, whatever piece of meat he gets, and he just turns and leaves. This is God's. The tabernacle is God's house. The people of Israel got to come every once in a while and feast with the Lord in His house. It's His house. And the, and the priests are walking into a situation where people are supposed to be having a feast with their God in his house. He has invited them to his house to abide with him and to eat with him and to sup with him. And the priests are walking into that situation with a fork and sticking it into the pot that's for them and God and taking it with them. How offensive would this be to God? This is, and this is by the way, and we think we understand hospitality in the south. Visit the Middle East sometime. If they take this and they blow it out a thousand times, what we even understand. This, this is so deeply offensive. <clears throat> the Levitical law was very clear that there are specific designated parts of each animal in each sacrifice that is set apart for the priests. They do get a piece of the sacrifice, but it is, it is very clearly what it's supposed to be. And they're just sticking it down in the pot and taking whatever they can get. They showed up with this three-pronged fork in their hands. Now, it hadn't crossed my mind how threatening this would look. Um, Paul referenced it when we were talking about it on Tuesday. They're like, yeah, somebody's going to get stabbed here. You want it to be the meat or you? It's kind of the the feeling that you could get with this. So trying to wrap my brain around that, I did a quick search of the term three-pronged fork. Now, you know what comes up when you search three-pronged fork? A fork. (laughs) It was very uninspiring. (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah, because, you know... Forks. They have prongs. Like that's, That was not helpful. Eventually, after sc- scrolling for way too long, I came to this, which suddenly inspired me. Okay, that looks a little scary. That, somebody coming and shoving that in my face and saying they're going to get some meat, I might be willing to do that. When I saw that one, now there's no connection biblically here. This is purely Chris psychology, so don't tell anybody later like, Chris said in the Bible. No, I didn't. The next image that came to me was some version of this. I connect a three-pronged fork like that to the devil. Like that is a, and by the way, you can imagine how, how deep a rabbit pit this turned out to be, a rabbit trail this turned out to be for me. But uh, this whole, the whole devil in the red tight costume and all that, um, a little bit of our, this, this cartoony picture of the devil comes from Greek myth. But most of it comes from, you won't believe this, American cartoons. They're the first people to dress the devil like this. And it was, it was us. You're welcome, world. That's, uh, that's, that's so good. All right, so verse 15, Moreover, so if that wasn't bad enough, they're stealing from the people in God's house as they're trying to feast with the Lord. They're interrupting the feast, stealing food from the people that God was supposed to be feasting with. Moreover, the language there, and if that wasn't bad enough, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast For he will not accept (laughs) boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, well, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by three-pronged fork or by force is what it says in the Bible. Um, They stole from the people that was bad enough. This, however, is stealing from God. That's why it's moreover Leviticus 7.23, speak to the people of Israel saying, you shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat. The fat of an animal that dies of itself and the fat of one that is torn to beast may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats the fat of an animal, which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. Exile or execution is the appropriate response to someone who eats the fat of one of these animals. And uh, looking at different commentaries, some think that the people of Israel tried to live such that they never ate the fat of these animals. But certainly the application was you did not eat the fat of the animal in the time of a food sacrifice. Why? Leviticus 3.5 says, Aaron's son shall burn it, the fat, on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is the wood of the fi- on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The fat was the part of the sacrifice that was directly God's. It was to be cooked, heated, boiled off the food, and then any that survived that would be burnt on the altar so that the aroma of the burning fat, which is what smells so good when you're grilling steaks, is going straight to heaven, and God is enjoying the scent of the burning fat on the altar. It's all His. The fat is all His. You do not take the fat. So catch what's happening here. The leaders of the tabernacle are dramatically in open disobedience, stealing from the people, disrupting the people's fellowship with God, um, and stealing from God, and demanding that the people through this make an inferior sacrifice to the Lord. I mean, how much else could they be doing wrong? I mean, are they going to start like just sleeping with people right there in the tabernacle? How much more offensive can they be? How many churches have we seen stumble or fall or even collapse entangled with the burdens of their immoral leaders? We see it all the time. A recent article to pastors that Dr. Bob shared with me um, summarized that the vast majority of ministers who fall could avoid falling if they would just that they would follow these two rules. Step one, don't give up. Step two, don't cheat on your spouse. If they would just get those two the vast majority who fall would not fall. It's shocking to to hear that. And it's disheartening and kind of embarrassing to be in a career path when the level of failure is this high for these reasons. That this becomes the new standard. You want to be great someday? Don't give up and don't cheat on your spouse. Um, That's a low mark, much less, it's not much of a high goal. Though I will tell you, I openly commit to both of those to you, um, as I have for 30 something years to my wife, but I'm not going to give up and I'm not going to cheat on Ginger. What a sad low mark. Local churches almost never fail. I don't say that in pride, by the way. I'm not saying that because I'm above that kind of thing. No, no, I know I'm not above that kind of thing, which is why um, I have the care that I have, the relationships I have, et cetera, in place. Local churches almost never fail because of pressure from the outside. I don't think I've ever seen one. I don't think I've ever seen a church fail from the pressures on the outside. Churches fail or split or fall or even collapse because of the pressure of the sin on the inside. Let's be very aware. Be careful, patient, humble to protect from the internal divisions that can undermine or even just distract the ministry of the local church. It's so easy for us to get caught up in our own little issues within the body of believers, which may be very important, no doubt about it. And we have ways of dealing with that. Jesus threw out a great formula for it in Matthew 18. When you face crisis or trauma or sin or something like that in the church, you go to that person and you have that conversation. If that doesn't go well, then you take people who you love that person and you you all go together and have that conversation. And if that doesn't go well, then you come to the leadership in the church to have that conversation. Jesus played that out very clearly for us. In this case, we have this sin being lived out. Verse 17 Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. As if it was beneath them. as not a good place to be. Now, this, set, this chapter and several as we go through, we're going to run into this weird thing that happens. Um, Alistair Begg described it <clears throat> as like you're in this dark place. These chapters are very dark. You're in this dark place, and the shadows are very heavy, and it's very what, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's dark and gloomy. And then all of a sudden, there's this bright shine of light. It's like God's like, okay, no, 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 I'm still here. I'm st- I know it seems dark. I know it seems like a, but look, look, I'm working over here. Look, focus there for a second. Okay, then now we'll get back to this part of the story. Because see, what's happening is, as we saw, just like with the idea that Hannah was horrified at being worthless, but that Eli's sons are worthless, what we're seeing is this, what we talked about, the reversal of fortunes that you see one, one fortune is doing this. The humble is being exalted and the prideful is being crushed. And that's happening simultaneously like this. It's happening in the it's ongoing. And so the author, <laughs> presumably Samuel at this point, is saying, hey, these are both happening. So you get these gloomy moments as bright light. It reminded me of like um, if you've ever been canoeing or if you've seen a movie about people canoeing or something like that, and they fall out of the canoe and they get in the water and they're underwater and there's are and it's all bad. It's just like, and they come up and they get a deep breath and they look around and just in time to be dragged back under. It's like, there's all, you, you know what I'm talking about? That kind of thing. That's what's happening in this chapter. We've been down in it. It's dark. It's scary. Look at this horrible things going on. These guys are doing these terrible things. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Isn't that sweet? He's got a little priest costume that he wears. It's adorable. He's like this big, and he has got. It probably drags the ground a little bit. It's a little bit too big for him. It hangs a little on the sleeves. He's so adorable. His mother used to make for him a little robe. I love it, it says a little robe. He could make for him a little robe and take it to him every year when she went with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Look at that. Isn't that adorable? She shows up once a year. Don't think about that too much. She shows up once a year to hang out with her little boy, and she, she spends all year loving and praying um, <laughs> for him, even though she can't see him, and she makes this robe for him, and every year she shows up with a new robe, and it's probably got his little favorite animals, uh, you know, knit into it somehow, or, or something, maybe it's got many colors, you know, it's a Joseph throwback, kind of, I don't know what all going on here, but, and, and then it would say, by the way, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman, for the petition that she asked of the Lord. Look at that. Eli's even getting involved here. He's actually praying and he seems to even know what's going on. That's so great for Eli that he's, he's doing this. And then, and then they would return home. And indeed the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Isn't that sweet? It's such a great little moment. You got a good breath? So... So here's, what, here's what's going on. We get this great picture of this. I don't know why she does It sounds like she has six children total, um, four boys, two girls. I don't know why she doesn't have seven. Seems to me like God miscounted here a little bit. Um, like seven would be the, the number you would expect here. I don't know why it's only six. Deal with it. I got, I got nothing, neither does anybody else. Like, it's like, she actually said in her prayer, the barren woman has seven children, and she has either five or six, depending on how you count. Moving along. This reminds me, this, this, this account reminds me of my very favorite movie, which is a movie called Searching for Bobby Fischer. In this movie, um, the, the, the hero's arc seems to be being told about the seven year old boy who's a chess prodigy. The hero's arc, which is someone faces a challenge they can't beat, and then a teacher comes along and teaches them and helps them grow, and then they accomplish this great thing. It's, it's really cool. I'm not going to spend any more time there. But what the I love about this story is you think the whole story that the heroes are, that's the hero's arc, and it turns out, that this young man, Josh waitskin he's actually the teacher. And all these other people are going through the ark, and they think they're his teachers. They're literally his coach, his father, his other teacher. They literally think they're the teachers, and it turns out he's the one teaching them to go through their ark. It's really cool. This is kind of like that. No one seems to understand what needs to be going on in the tabernacle, but a little boy in a little priestly costume. And they should all be learning and listening and getting it. But catch your breath... Because it doesn't seem like anybody is. Get ready to hold your breath again as we dive back into the sin. Verse 22, I wasn't kidding when I said that a minute ago. Now, Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing in all of Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, the language is a little tough here. Is this that they are laying with women who work in that tent or is it, as many said in the commentaries, that he, they are sleeping with these women at the tabernacle. Now, <clears throat> again, let's go back to our hospitality picture just for a second. You're trying to have a feast with friends. Okay, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Like, how offensive to your hospitality is this? All of a sudden, this is going on right on your doorstep? How unthinkable. This is supposed to be shocking. It is shocking. In a weird way, it may be the least shocking of the three to the Hebrew mind, but this is just so shocking. What? We know from Ezekiel 38, I mean Exodus 38:8, that there were women who served in the tabernacle. In fact, you remember Anna, who never leaves the temple at the time of Jesus. She's there all the time, serving all the time. The tabernacle is a great place to confess sin. It's not supposed to be a place where you go to commit sin. This is this is a This is more than just a complete reversal. And I will tell you, over the years, I have worked with several clients and friends and people in church who have been seduced by pastors and church leaders um, at the lay level or the professional level or whatever. And this is just unconscionable. It's absolutely unthinkable that that would go on. What an abuse of the power differential. What an abuse of a role. Not only to fail to guide someone to God, but instead to seek to drive them away from Him I wouldn't want to talk with God about that. I think that's why God is saying, listen, better than something like that, you'd be better off going ahead and tying a millstone, and those are big suckers, around your neck and throw yourself in a sea than to accomplish this in the life of a child. We talk about regularly, it's why we want to be a place where people are safe to come and experience church, even if you've had a a bad church experience or, or you've been unchurched, you've been poorly churched, or even traumatically churched. We want this to be a place where people know they are safe. I'll reference that more in a minute. In a minute. <clears throat> the thought of someone who is teaching my children, actively teaching them to have contempt for me, intentionally teaching them to love the things that I hate, to defy the things that I think are right, that's unthinkable, and that's what the sons of Eli are doing. How, do they, how could you ever find safety again? I'm impressed by those of you who have faced deep church hurt at some stage and continue to try to come back. The amount of courage that requires is amazing to me. I don't know that I would have done it. I nearly quit the church just because it was boring. For you guys to have faced real trauma and then to, pull, to come back and keep trying, uh, that's, that requires a lot of courage. Verse 23, he said to them, why do you do such things? This is, this is Eli. He knows. Um, he kept hearing about it. He doesn't get off the hook, right? Why do you do such things? I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report. I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now, I just got to say, I get what's being said here. From From the legal perspective in the tabernacle, if God is turned against you, there's really no one to speak for you. Like if God, that's the case. Once the once the once the trial's over, it's over. But this, to me, as a dad, feels like one of the most pathetic and impotent things that a man could say. I, I read this. Who could who could? If someone sins against the Lord, who could intercede for them? I don't know. Maybe their dad. Seems like their dad might could intercede for them. Could go before the Lord and beg on their behalf. That seems like one option. I don't know, who intercedes for the people of Israel? I've got a crazy thought. What about the priests? Hey, what about the high priest whose actual job is to intercede before the Lord for the people? And here you have who may be the high priest, certainly is a priest, and dad going, I don't know. I mean, I guess you're just out of luck. There's no one to go... Now, he's trying to bring about the attention to them of how the seriousness of their sin. And I get that. But his level of impotence... I find as a dad, so hard to tolerate. He's doing so little to deal with this and apparently has been doing almost nothing up until now. Now listen to what happens. His dad's not doing his job. Priest isn't doing his job. The people of Israel aren't doing their job. So here what we get. But they would not listen to the voice of their father for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now you're probably troubled by that. And you should be. We're supposed to be when we read that. God has said, we're done you can't. You don't get a chance to repent anymore. I have closed that door to you. Now, he doesn't tell them that, but we get an insight, a supernatural insight into the thoughts of God in this moment, which is wild considering what you're talking about. This is the God of reversal of fortunes. This is the God who we know is the God of second chances and third chances and 70 times seven chances. And yet in this situation, God has said, I've already done this trial. The level of offense against me and contempt against me, I have determined. I have already tried them. They have been found wanting and they are condemned. The time for repentance is past. And this is thrown in our face because it is so exceptional. You read through the Hebrew scriptures, you don't get a lot of this at all. You read through the New Testament, you don't get a lot of this. You aren't reminded that there may come a point at which God is done waiting. But it does happen. It's exceptional enough that it's worthy of note in this passage. That doesn't happen often. And so when it does happen, we get to hear about it. But we often forget that, don't we? We, we love the nature of God, and it's all true. We love the nature of God as the, man, the, the God who loves our soul and who is filled with grace and who is love and who, who, who has all these different traits that we connect with. But sometimes we forget what it says in Galatians 6-7, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. The sons of Eli have sown contempt and death and disconnection between the people and God, and they have been found wanting and are guilty of their crime. And it's time. I think we're supposed to read this and think, I may need to repent. I think that's supposed to be our thought. Man, I don't want to stall. I don't want to risk getting to the point where the habit of sin in my life has reached the point where I'm no longer, where repentance is no longer one of my options. Where I have so defied God that it is impossible to return me to repentance. There may come a day when God deafens you to the call of repentance as the just consequence of your sin. So I encourage you, let today be the day of repentance. While we are pondering, by the way, we're sitting in the midst of this. Pondering, which I think is appropriate, these dark, sobering thoughts, feeling like the, wind, the air is kind of left our lungs. We're running short. We've got nothing but bubbles left. As we're, you, you automatically are asking yourself, man, in this story, this is harsh. He has removed repentance as an option for the sons of Eli. Where is his grace? Where is his love? Where is his willingness to work and give life and reverse fortunes? Glad you asked. Verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. There you go. Get a little breath here. Samuel knows. Probably need a little encouragement right now. Here's a spark of hope. One side, the reversal of fortune is sliding like an avalanche slough from a mountain. It's going and it's going fast. And the other, a tree is growing in the ashes. A tree is growing in the midst of the trash heap. Now we go immediately back under. So deep breath, Eli gets his warning. It may be too late for his sons, but maybe it's not too late for the father. Maybe so. Verse 27, there came a man of God to Eli who said to him, by the way, we have no idea who this man is. And it doesn't matter. He comes with a message from the Lord. That's all we need to know about him. And at all, we do know about him. So you can imagine this random guy shows up at the tabernacle. I'd like to speak to Eli, please. Okay, cool. Gets a meeting with Eli. Hey, Eli, thus says the Lord. Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest and to go up to my altar and to burn incense or an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all the offerings by fire from the people of Israel, didn't I? I did. This is just like Jesus when he does these, has these confrontations with the Sadducees or the Pharisees you got to love he's having a confrontation with them. They call him out on something. They have this little debate. And Jesus loves to start with like, have you ever read this passage? He's like, I'm curious. Have you ever read the passage where this happens? I'll bet you missed this section of the Hebrew scriptures. It's a little little condescending. It's meant to be, I think, a little bit insulting because that's what the game they're playing with him. That's this. the, The man of God shows up to potentially the high priest and says, hey, I'm trying to remember something. Wasn't it I, God speaking, wasn't it I who chose Aaron? I I seem to recall it being me that chose Aaron. I'm confident I chose your forefather Aaron. And didn't I tell him that he could have a certain part, he and his descendants forever could have a certain part of the sacrifice, that there was a certain part laid up for them, just for them? I could swear. I remember doing that. Do you remember me doing that? Do you remember that here, Eli? Yeah, verse 29. Then why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons. Here's the condemnation for Eli. And honor your sons above me. Hard for us as Americans who honor our family above God sometimes. We don't like to hear this. Honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest portion of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares... I promised that your house and the house of your father, still talking about Aaron, should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eyes on the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. And now the reversal is proclaimed. It's going to come. I said that the families of, of Aaron could serve. I said that the descendants of the Levitical priesthood could serve. But that promise no longer applies to your house. Will the, priests of, will the Aaron still be the priests? Absolutely. Will the sons of Aaron, the Leviticus, Levitical priesthood, will they still be the priests? Yes, for quite a bit longer. But, Eli, your house, a countdown has started and are not going to be any old men. Like it's, it's, We're going to start this process. Your line will cease as priests in my tabernacle. If anyone in your, in your line happens to survive my wrath for a while, start in verse 33, the only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this, you sh- this shall come upon your two sons, Hopni and Phinehas. It shall be a sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he will go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. God tells Eli, the honor of your family being part of Levitical system is about to run out. Your other descendants of Aaron will take over. Other Levitical families will have to take over, and it won't be your family. In fact, Abiathar, who is the great, great grandson of Eli at the time of David, will be the last and only survivor of a massacre of Nob. We'll get there. When Saul comes in and massacres um, all the priests in a certain area um, because they helped David. When he does that, only Abiathar will survive. And he will go on to be a priest under David, the great grandson of Eli. He will go on to be a priest under David, but then under Solomon, Solomon will fire him. Solomon will turn, will turn on him and will fire him, totally dishonor him, humiliate him in front of everybody and strip from him his rights to be the priest and his family. And that will be the last member of the family of Eli who serves in the tabernacle. You can find that in 1 Kings chapter 2. By the way, one day, it'll go even beyond that, God would remove the honor of the high of priesthood from the tribe of Levi entirely. And he instead would move it to the tribe of Judah, to his son, Jesus. Jesus, a priest in the order, no longer of Levi, but of Melchizedek. So we could unpack that for hours, we're not going to. Here's the deal. When, we in deal, when we're dealing with this and see the justice of, God, of a just God, I want a couple of things to be true. One, um, that we would recognize that this is about our interaction with the Lord. It's not the job of humans to step in and do this. Friends can help us see sin in our lives. Friends can help us deal with weakness in our lives. They can call us to account because they love us. But our sin, the relationship of us to sin is primarily and fundamentally between us and God. It's one of the reasons why it's hard enough. I want people at South Spring have to face the hard things about following God here. There's no need to protect us from that. I wouldn't want it if I could, I guess, but it's plenty hard to follow God and to be established in his truth and to stay there, to stick and to stand. What I don't want is for people to face the abuse of other believers here. That's, I would love for that to just be a thing that doesn't happen. I think the most dangerous archer for the devil is us. We all get there and we stand with our shield of faith and we face against the forces of the enemy and our shield of faith is able to quench the fiery darts of the evil one. But sometimes it's really tough when people behind us in the line are plowing arrows into our backs. Let's, let's be careful that we're never those people, that we're never the ones firing arrows for the devil into the backs of other believers. One of the things we may need to repent of is to look at our own lives and see how we engage with his church, his bride. What our stance is in regards to some of those things. And then when we do face them, that we make sure we know how to gently handle, like from Galatians 6 and Matthew, like I said, 18, to go to those people and have those conversations, be open about them, deal with them and let God heal, bring to the light and heal. There's plenty of hard things about following God um, without us having to deal with the wounds from each other as well, any more than is necessary. So I want us to wrap up our time this morning as we consider what God's word says about some of this and about the fact that, yes, he is a God of grace and of love and of patience and of mercy. And he is a God of justice and hospitality and wrath against those who can have contempt against his truth and his people. So if you'll stand, I suspect that an appropriate application for any of us on a day like today with this passage would be to look at our own lives and say, where are the patterns of sin? Where have I hardened my heart? Where have I blinded my eyes? Where am I living in fear or anger? Where am I living in unforgiveness or just responding to the flesh and giving it what it wants? For us to look in our own lives and think about, not only do I confess these things and ask God to forgive this, give these things and to restore that relationship with him the way we want it to be lived out, but also, what do I need to do in regards to with other believers, having those conversations within families, within friendship groups, within whatever? How, do we, how are we working to restore that? So that would be our prayer. I know all of us have things like this. So let's dive in and, and seriously ask him. Uh, we'll pray in a moment and sing together. In the meantime, I want us to have this in our hearts. Respond as the Spirit leads in a moment. If you need to come pray or head over to the corner, we'll be happy to pray, we'll be happy to pray with you here or there. And pray where you are to repent, confess, whatever those things are. Um, and then if you've already been through our welcome home process and you're ready to join our dysfunctional family, um, and uh, you've you already talked to Lance or whatever, you want to come down and announce that this morning, we'd love for you to do that too. Hear from the word of the Lord. Hebrews 3, starting in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation. And I said, they will always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The very words of God.